to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch Podcast is a producer's perspective, and I have the privilege of being joined by Joe Hatch, who's a rancher from Northeast Colorado. Thanks for joining me today, Joe. You bet, Aaron. I'm glad to be here and look forward to the conversation. Joe, before we talk a little more about some of the things that you're doing with your operation there to improve the profitability of it, things around range management, economic analysis, share with us a little more about yourself, your background, and the history of the operation that you're a part of there. Okay. So uh, I grew up a little bit south of here uh, in Northeast Colorado, and uh, my dad had worked on this operation during the 80s and early 90s. I was actually born here. Uh, they moved away. And in 2007, um, the owner of the operation passed away and passed it down to his children. In 2010, they asked my dad to come back up and uh, kind of manage the operation. I graduated college in 2014 and came back to work on the operation full-time in 2015. And I guess I've kind of been hanging around here ever since. Tell us a little more about the resource base that you have there on the operation. What do you have in terms of range resources, cattle? What's that look like? So currently we have about 13,000 acres. It's been basically the same amount of deeded acres since 1958. A few little changes here and there, but that's basically it. Uh, We'd be, I guess, kind of rolling hills, hard grass country, uh, mostly western wheat, buffalo grass, grandma grass, hard grass country. We have about 250 cow-calf pairs right now, and we turn over about 800 yearlings a year, and some of that they graze in and out, and then we have a small background lot too where we custom feed as well as feed some of our own calves in there. Uh, One thing we've tried to do with our yearlings in the last few years is to turn them over more than just one time. So we'll get calves in starting this time of year, turn them around in February, buy some more. Then they go back out on grass in May. And then we get rid of them in the first part of August and then start loading back up again. So it gives us, lets us hit a few different markets. Joe, tell us a little more about some of the changes you've seen in the operation there since you and your dad have come back and And what are some of the things that have occurred just in terms of looking at your range resources and how you manage that? Okay. So when we first came back up here, I think it was pretty normal for for most ranches in this area, for sure. And maybe, maybe more places. Uh, There was pastures and they were all between five and 700 acres, a couple thousand acre pastures. Um, But it was kind of standard. You put 40 to 45 cows in a pasture and two bowls and you put them there in May and then you come back in September, October and gather them and precondition the calves, throw them back out and wean them. I guess it was four years ago, I believe, I had met you and we got to talking and I found out I didn't know as much as I thought I maybe did. We started putting cow groups together. So we used to have nine, nine herds of cows on this place and then plus two groups of replacement heifers. And we went down to three groups of cows and one group of 
replacement heifers, and now we're down to one group of yearlings and one group of cows. Um, biggest thing that limits us here is our water resources. So we can't have two larger groups of cows, especially pears, because they're doing so much water when it's hot. We can't quite get our groups as big as we would like to, but uh, we can do about 250 pears in a group, and that's kind of the maximum water that we have. With the changes you made to your grazing management, what were the things you put in place to make that occur? And what are some of the things you're seeing happen with that? So the biggest thing we did is, is consolidated our cow herds. Uh, that automatically gives your pastures rest uh, and allows more growing season rest for sure. We, we basically had no growing season rest the way that we had done stuff before. Now we have good growing season rest. We're usually on a pasture for seven to 10 days a year. And I think one thing that I guess isn't necessarily range management, uh, but really ties into it is how much more simple the operation gets where you don't have cattle all over the place. We've put in probably 20 or 25 miles of single strand high tensile wire. Um, we've came up with different ways to do that that has worked better for us. Uh, we use wood posts and we staple the wire to it. We don't use any insulators on any of it. We've came up with a way that makes it fast and easy and cheap to put it up. Uh, it's been a learning curve. We We've done it several different ways and keep doing it a little bit different every time to get better at it. Um, but with that, we went from about 25 pastures. I think now we're at like 68 pastures. Um, and, and then we use some temporary hot wire too to split some stuff up even more here and there when it looks like it's going to work for us. Joe, was there a learning curve? You mentioned there was a little bit in terms of putting in that electric fence for you who are putting it yeah. in, but how about for your cows as well? I guess share both perspectives, both for you and, and your dad as you guys have done that, and then also from a cow herd perspective. They, yeah, our cows, they were hot wire broke already. Uh, they go to corn stalks every winter, and so they were pretty hot wire broke. The thing that we've really had to change with them, and, and it's a lot of it's stockmanship, uh, is we move them every three to seven days, and especially May and June, uh, they're moving for sure every seven days, and most of the time it's closer to three. It takes a while every year to get the calves trained to go with the cows. That's probably the biggest thing that has challenged us is moving pairs can be a very, very humbling experience, and you can do it the same way three times, and it works well, and the fourth time, it doesn't work at all. Uh, so that's been a and I, I enjoy it because it plays with your mind to try to see what's going to work that day. As you've went to these shorter graze periods, longer rest periods, especially growing season rest, what are you seeing occur with your rangeland there? So we used to be, I would say, 75 or 80 uh, percent buffalo grass and blue grama grass dominated, um, which are good grasses. They're sod forming and but they just don't grow very many pounds of grass per acre. Um, we've seen big changes in the amount of cool seasons we've had move into our pastures. So we have a lot more uh, western wheat, needle and thread. We're getting some uh, thread leaf sedge. We're uh, having some Canadian rye and uh, big blue stem pop up places that I never would have thought we would have. 
we used to have a few thistle issues down in some low-lying areas, and we've kind of focused grazing those at different times of the year, and I think we're actually beating them back a little bit just with grazing. So that's been fun to fun to play with for sure. Joe, you've obviously got a different breeding season situation now. When I say breeding season, instead of having different groups of cows, you've got all these cows running together with a set of bulls. Has that provided any unique challenges or how have you managed that? Uh, I don't think we have any more cripples than we used to have. So what we do now is we'll throw all, we'll throw uh, about 30, ca- 30 cows per bull. And so we put that many bulls in one pasture with all the cows. The biggest thing it's done for us is we don't have to fix near as much fence because bulls aren't next to each other fighting through the fence and get mixed up. Uh, the other thing it's allowed us to do is we set our grazing rotation up so that during our breeding season, we don't have bulls against any neighbor's cattle either. That's been a huge part of our, huge part of our grazing rotation is keeping bulls away from cows and heifers to get mixed up with other people's stuff. Um, our exterior fences take almost no pressure anymore because the cows never run out of feed and they're constantly moving. I think a little bit of that has to do with hot wire too. They don't even want to touch a hot wire or a barbed wire fence because we run really high powered chargers um, that are usually about 8,500 to 9,500 volts. And they get to where they respect it enough that they don't want to be anywhere near a fence. Talk a little bit about your bull management. I think you guys do some things a little bit unique in that you raise your own bulls and also purchase some bulls. Just just share briefly your approach with that. Yeah, we used to, I think, I guess I came out of college and thought I knew everything and thought that the more money you spent on genetics, the better off you were. Um, And we played that game and bought some high dollar bulls, uh, but then they got crippled just like the cheap ones. So one thing, and we've used AI very extensively also. Uh, One thing we've moved to here the last few years is raising our own bulls. Uh, And how we do that is they run with the cows and all the rest of the cows all, all summer. They don't get treated any different as calves. And we wean them for about three or four days, and then we put them in with the big bulls. And the big bulls that we have a couple pastures that have live water, they're about six miles from the house, and they get turned out down there, and we go check them about once a month. Um, They probably weigh 750 or 800 pounds when they get turned out on cows when they're yearlings. Um, We don't have any foot issues anymore. they uh, stay way more sound than uh, bulls that we'd purchased in the past. I think a lot of it is just they get tough and hard being turned out all winter. Uh, We usually have about 75 to 80% of them will test when they're yearlings. So we do have some fallout, uh, more fallout than you would if you were to feed them, Uh, but they don't fall. We cut them right away and they don't fall out near as much later in the year. How do you do your bull selection as you think about raising your own bulls? Do you have some criteria there you set up to try to identify what you want? How do you, how do you sort those out? Yeah, we have very extensive cow records, um, way more than probably any commercial person should. Um, so we have a set of cows that I don't know. I've heard people call them like their nucleus herd or something of that sort. But we have a handful of cow families that have proven have a lot of longevity and they breed early 
every year. And so we have that specific set of cows and um, that's who we try to select our bulls out of. And so just when we brand, we have those handful of bulls that we want to keep, just make sure that they don't get cut when we're branding. And every once in a while, one does get cut, but not too big of a deal. And that's kind of their selection criteria. And we'll, in the fall or throughout the summer, if we see one that we don't like how they're performing or something like that, uh, we can, we cut them too. So, so there's more that goes into it than just a random selection, but a little bit of it is random. If we don't, we don't do much DNA work and stuff like that anymore. Um, we never felt like that was really paying us. So we've kind of got away from that and let the, let the cattle tell us which ones were the best. As you look at these bulls that you've developed in that manner, what tends to be the life expectancy for those in your operation? So we really started doing it three years ago. And I think our oldest bulls that we did that with would have been born in 2017. Uh, this year we had, we turned out total on cows and heifers, I think 17 bulls. Um, and we had three bulls get pretty sore and none of them were anything that we had raised. Uh, our bulls that we raised, I, they just seem like, seem like they're heck of a lot tougher. And, uh, you know, they don't ever see a pin. They don't see feed. Um, their condition stays a lot better, uh, especially as yearlings. You know, normally when you throw a yearling bull out to breed cows, they fall apart. And um, like they, those, they've never had anything but grass and they stay hard and stay good throughout the breeding season. Um, one thing that I think is a big caution when you start doing if you start doing something like that is they don't look like you want them to look when you, when you're going and looking at them in May or June. Um, but we don't turn our bulls out till middle of July. So they've had a couple months of good green grass and they really start looking good. I don't think I would want to do that with a set of bulls and then try to turn them out in May. I think you'd have some pretty big issues. Joe, let's shift gears here a little bit. And as you've came back to the ranch and looked at some continuing education, you've started to look at the operation, I think, a little differently, do some economic analysis, run some numbers, look at the different enterprises that are part of your business. How has that shaped kind of some decisions you've made and, and what the operation looks like today, as well as where you're headed with it? So one of the big changes we made is our calving season. Uh, we used to calve in March, into uh, March, like most people around here, or maybe even we were a little bit later than a lot of people already. Uh, we moved that back to May 1st is when we start calving. Now, uh, one thing that from an economic standpoint, that really changed for us is the amount of feed. I think last year we fed our cows for nine days, and that's the first time they've had any feed in three years. Uh, but we were pretty dry last especially last fall and so we didn't have any hardly any good regrowth in the fall so but they so they did get fed a little bit last year one big cost that we used to have like a big out of the pocket cost is we take our cows to corn stalks and so we would supplement protein the whole time they're on corn stalks with calving in may we don't start supplementing them with protein until the start of the third trimester 
uh, when their demand starts to go up quite a bit. So uh, that saved us quite a lot of money uh, by doing that. And our calves are smaller than what they would have been uh, had we still calved in March. But we have been turning a lot of them over into yearlings instead of selling them as calves in October. So that's kind of helped cover up some of that calf weaning weight cost. As you look at your shift in calving season, obviously that shifts your time of breeding as well. Have you had any struggle in terms of getting cows to breed later in the summer with your shift in calving season? We really haven't. Uh, I think it's partly the way that our country is. Uh, we have, like I said, we have a lot of buffalo grass and grandma grass growing. Um, and that that's one of the one thing that I think buffalo and grandma grass does is you have good animal performance, probably maybe a little bit better animal performance than you would on some sandhills country um, or something or something like that. Uh, we we have a lot more uh, acres per cow, uh, but we do get good animal performance. I think that that's maybe been one thing for us that helped uh, with our breed up. And I also think that with our range management, those cows are constantly moving to fresh feed. So even when it does get dry and dusty in August, they still have some good quality feed that they're going on. How about replacement heifer development? How has that changed as you've shifted and changed your time of calving? We used to always keep our heifers turned out all winter, but they're also, we have a feed truck too. And so they were, also, they were always getting fed a little bit distillers and ground hay and just keeping them in pretty good shape. So the last couple of years, we've actually been able to send them to corn stalks also. And so they get protein supplement on corn stalks, but it's cheapened up our carrying costs quite a bit. They don't look nearly as good as what they used to in April, but by June, you can't hardly tell any difference from what they used to look like. So it's cheapened, our, cheapened up our carrying capacity quite a bit on our heifers. Uh, they get, so we'll turn our bulls out on them about the 20th of July. Uh, so they've, again, had a couple good months of green grass. They cycle good. Uh, we actually just preg checked them yesterday. We had 76% of them were bred. Uh, on that, they had no feed. They've never had any feed since they were born. Um, we didn't AI and we didn't do any synchronization at all. We just turned up. We had three bulls on 150 heifers for 28 days and we had 75% red. Uh, so they did actually better than expected. Uh, we're trying to challenge them pretty hard because if they're gonna fall out, we would like them to fall out right now rather than next year or in the next few years. Let's talk a little about just, you mentioned heifer development. And one of the things you have been looking at as you think about the operation is how to address this situation of cow cost, cow depreciation. and Really, this fits into the formula. You're trying to get a heifer into the herd at less cost, but you're also looking at the backside of that as well in terms of how do we get more value for that cow when she leaves the herd. Share with us just a little more about how you're looking at that. What are some things you're doing and what are some changes you've made to what maybe you were doing five, 10 years ago? So we always really thought we were doing a good job with our cows. Uh, we never had any cows over 10 years old on the place. 
Uh, we'd sell anything that was dry or open. We made no excuses for any of them. Uh, we tried to get rid of any cripples before they started to lose any condition. Uh, but a few years ago, I started, people started talking about cat appreciation quite a bit. And I couldn't really wrap my head around it. So I took our numbers. And like I said, we had way more data than we ever should have on a commercial set of cows. So we had individual cow weights and calf weights going back for about seven years. With that, I took each age of cow and took their set of calves and put it and got their average weaning weights and put a dollar amount to each pound of weaning weight. So you hear a lot of times that your older cows, your seven, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old cows are the hardier calving cows and they're the ones that are packing the most pounds and having the best calves. So we had all those numbers. So I took the time and went through all that data. It turned out that our calves out of our seven and eight, nine-year-old cows, those calves were worth 30 to $40 a head more than the calves out of our two and three and four-year-old cows. That didn't come close to touching the amount of money that we lost on cow depreciation from a balance sheet standpoint. So we actually had, it was about, and it's a rough figure and you can look at it a lot of different ways, but usually cows will lose about $150 per head per year for after they're six years old. So we started selling all of our five and six year old cows. Some disadvantages also, uh, we have about one to 2% more opens on our younger cows than those older cows. Uh, Another disadvantage, or I guess one thing we have to had to learn about and to work through is we have a lot of first and second calf cows now. And with that, you have cows that don't always know where their calves are at. And we're, like we're moving them usually every three to five days, especially at the time when those calves are young. So your stockmanship has to kind of step up its game and you have to learn how to move babies without getting them scared and then try to keep cows from running off to new grass. Um, so we've had to work through that a lot. An advantage that the numbers didn't tell us is we basically have zero disposition issues. The cows don't learn that they can be mean by the time they're four or five years old usually. Uh, we don't have any bad bags, bad feet, bad eyes. Uh, we've, we've basically taken all that to, to zero. So as you look at, just to kind of put my head around what you're talking about, basically what you did is you went through and looked at each age group of cow. You assigned a value to the pounds of calf weaned. And then you also looked at based on what that cow's market value is today and what I project her market value would be next year on a steady market, what's happening in terms of what that cow's losing in terms of her market value versus the value of calf she's producing. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so we basically, we increased the dollars that are, if we had 250 cows that were your normal from first calf heifers to say 10 or 11 years old or 12 years old, uh, we basically took all those cows and put them under six years old. And so by doing that, the balance sheet value of our cow herd went up substantially because we weren't losing the money on the backside of the cows. So our 
like we are, we don't start calving till May. So we have a bit different cow value compared to someone that's calving in March. So our cows are naturally worth a bit less money uh, than a March calving cow, but we are not losing 150 or $200 a head every year after the cow is over six years old. So as you look at your front side in terms of getting a heifer into the herd, and now you look at the back side in terms of trying to market that cow before she has significant depreciation, what's been the impact of that to the operation as a whole? So that has allowed us to have the capital to turn calves into yearlings without taking a hit, too much of a hit on cash flow. So where we started calving later also, we could have put ourselves in a pretty big cash flow crunch by not getting that check in October, November. But by turning those cows over every year and not having to feed the heifers so much, it kept us out of a cash flow crunch for our marketing timing of our cows. Uh, that's been a huge help. I know you talk to a lot of people about turning calves into yearlings to maybe collect some more value, but the bank says they need paid on December 1st. It really helps you to make those calves into yearlings without being in such a cash flow crunch. Anything else, Joe, that you think has been valuable or some changes you've made to the operation as you look back over the last five to 10 years that you've been part of things there? Uh, you know, I think the biggest things that we've made changes on is just being smart enough to realize that you, there's always something to learn. Somebody knows what you don't know. Um, try to be the dumbest person in the room. Um, I've got made a lot of great contacts uh, through yourself and uh, Dallas Mount through uh, the ranch ranch practicum class you guys taught. That's what really opened my eyes up to this. Uh, so I think if if people want to learn, uh, they need to stop being so busy and try to go learn because there's always something out there that can help you. Joe, also, I know that you're seeking to grow the operation and look for opportunities there. How are you as a younger producer trying to get a foothold in the business and get an established opportunity for yourself? So one thing we're trying to work through right now is basically making a transition of the ranch. So uh, we have a an absentee owner now um, who really wants to help us succeed ourselves. So what we're trying to work through right now is basically set up a lease on the ranch so that we can transition. Uh, a lot of the reason for that is we are all at different stages in our lives. So there's uh, my dad and the owner are in their six, about 60 or in their 60s. Uh, so they don't want to take a lot of risk uh, and they want to slow down a little bit. I'm not to that stage yet, and I am not risk adverse at all, probably to a fault. And so we're trying to make sure that I can take the risk that I would like to take, as well as them shelter themselves from too much risk and be able to have more of more free time and, and slow down a little bit. So really, in a sense, what you're doing is, as you structure, from what I've heard you say, is looking to maybe separate the land enterprise, which you have an absentee land owner. So you are, I think, looking at a lease situation there. And then 
you are looking at both owning and, and leasing cows to make that work. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So we are, so I own, we've always owned some cows. Um, I've owned, since I came back, I've been able, part of my salary has been to run some cows on the ranch. Um, and then also we partner on the yearlings that we run, we partner on all those also. So that's allowed me to kind of get into the business myself enough that I could really learn about the do's and don'ts and make those decisions with my own money also. So with that, we are basically, like you said, separating the land business from the operating business. And so the plan is right now, I will own the operating company, my wife and I, and we'll have the operating company and we're going to buy out the the rest of the cow herd that we don't already own. We'll buy those out. And then we'll probably still partner on yearlings uh, just so that everybody can have a piece of it. Uh, keeps everybody engaged and wanting to keep going and keeps relationships good. Um, but the cow herd, uh, the plan is right now to transition the cows from the current owners to myself and my wife. And uh, without, without the help of them uh, basically being the bank for it, it'd be very difficult to, to go and do it ourselves. Um, there's definitely a way to do it. Um, but we are very fortunate to have people that want us to do well and are willing to help us uh, make that work. Well, Joe, I really appreciate your time today. Appreciate your, I think, vulnerability, just sharing some of the things that you've done there, some changes you've made, and uh, it's been fun to visit with you today. Thanks for your time. You bet, Aaron. I appreciate being here. Well, for more information on some of the topics we discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Uh, Joe mentioned in our conversation today some of the continuing education that he's had the opportunity to be a part of. And one thing I do want to mention, we are going to have some unit cost production workshops coming up this fall and winter. And so if you would like to have an opportunity to get exposed to what it looks like to do an economic analysis on a ranch, would encourage you to contact me and I'd be happy to share with you the dates and locations for those unit cost production workshops. And at the workshop, we actually go through a sample ranch and do many of the same things we talked about today, looking at the different enterprises on the ranch, the value that's there, how those interact with one another, and where there may be opportunity to make change to improve over overall economic profitability. So if that's of interest to you, please let me know. I'd be happy to share that with you. Also, if you would like to visit with Joe, I know he uh, would be happy to have a conversation he appreciates the opportunity to do that. And so would encourage you to look him up and uh, just pick his brain, ask him about some of the things they've done there and, and also just uh, learn more about some of the changes they made and the impact that's had to their operation. I would love if anybody would reach out um, to me. I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. Uh, every time I talk to anybody, I learn something. So, Well, I really appreciate you making that offer, Joe. And uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Probably the best thing is you can email me, uh, Joe Hatch, that's J-O-E-H-A-T-C-H-1125 at live.com. And if you contact me there, I'd sure like, sure like to have any conversations anybody wants. Thanks again, Joe. I'd really appreciate your time today. You bet. Thank you.